You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Take your Bibles. We're looking at the book of Job this morning, Job chapter number one. Our text will come at the first verse of Job chapter 3, but we need to read a couple of verses in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, and then we'll give you the thought from Job chapter number 3. I'm glad that I learned to trust Him, aren't you? Trusted Him with my eternity, so I probably can trust Him every single day, and you need to trust Him. Whatever it is today, that's your answer. Whatever you came looking for, that was the answer. We could give an invitation now and just go home if we would just take that truth and just trust Jesus with whatever it is. And we trusted Him with youth conference, and He blessed. Amen. And we trusted him with soul winning, and yesterday people got saved. Trusted him with uh, Sunday school this morning, and people came. And trusted him throughout the day. It, it, it just works. Just trust the Lord. He's never let us down. The book of Job t- today, and we're going to look at the end of Job chapter number one, just so I can give you a little bit of a foundation. We'll go through the story of Job's trial quickly, and then we'll get to the thought this morning. Look at verse number 20, what the Bible says. Then Job arose and rent his mantle. And shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Well, look what he, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. That phrase in verse 22, I put a circle around the three words, in all this. And if you study out the first chapter, in all this means murdered servants. In all this means stripped from his, of his finances. In all this, barren fields. In all this, stolen livestock. In all this, ten dead children. In all of that, Job sinned not. He worshipped in it. He prayed in it. He stayed faithful in it. Chapter 2, it just rolls on over. Didn't stop, but it continued. The Bible said in verse 1 of chapter 2, the very first word, again. Not over yet, Job, again. You go down through chapter number 2, and it tells us that his body's afflicted with a disease that's incurable. All over his body, from the top to the bottom, he's in pain. So much so that he sits down and scrapes his flesh with a piece of pottery. Then his wife says, Job, I wish you'd kill yourself. You've destroyed our home and brought judgment upon us. I wish you'd just curse God and die. Then his friends come, and they don't say anything to Job, but I think they might have said things about him. For seven days they sat there and did not address Job, but I would say they probably murmured to each other about his condition. And so for seven days he sat there and heard his friends murmur about him. But the Bible says, if you read down in chapter 2, verse number 10, look at the end of the verse, in all this did not Job sin with his lips. In this, he didn't sin. He didn't sin in a cursing wife. He didn't sin in a forsaking group of friends. He didn't sin in an afflicted body. He didn't sin and did children. He didn't give up on God in the loss of his finances. He did well in all this. But in chapter number 3, this is what I want to speak to you about a little while this morning. Look what it says in the very first verse. After this. 
opened Job his mouth and cursed. He didn't sin in it, but he failed after it. He did well in it, but he fell after it. I was sitting in a camper this week in Georgia, tiny little thing. It was hotter in the, it was more like an easy bake oven. But I said in the camper this week while I was preaching down there and was preparing for today. And there's something that's different when you're preparing to preach to people that you preach to all the time. As you prepare a message, you see people while you prepare a message. And you think about all the people in our building today, and I don't know everybody personally, but I know enough to know this. There are people that are in this building that are in all this right now. Whatever it is, physically or financially, you're in whatever it is right now. And thank God for those that are handling it well, because that helps the rest of us who are not in all this have faith in God that He'll help us when we have to go through it. But then there's a crowd, and that's the crowd I'm worried about today, that you're living in the after this of whatever it was. And sometimes the after this might be more of a trial than the in all this. Because the in all this, you're busy. The adrenaline's pumping. You've got something to take care of. But then once it's settled and the comforters are gone and you're idle and all you have is time to think, that's where you've got to watch that you don't destroy your life. I think about churches that survived in all this. Churches survived COVID and then fell apart after it. Marriages that survived COVID and then fell apart after it. Or businesses that somehow navigated that. And I hate we always use that, but it's just the contemporary... And then fell apart after it. For a little while this morning, I want to speak to you, and I don't know how bombastic I'll be or if I'll preach like it's. I just want to help you. I'm praying God will help us today on this thought. The after this might be more trying than in all this. Let's pray. God, please help me today. I pray. Pray to speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I preached my grandparents' funerals, both of them. And that's an awkward position to be in, honestly, to be the grandson and the pastor or the preacher for the family. During a funeral like that. And to be honest with you, it was strange to me at first, but I really didn't feel much emotion about the thing. I was there at the bedside of both of them when they passed away. I was holding hands and praying and, and using, using scripture to comfort during those seasons in our life. And then I helped in all the preparation, went to the different places, the funeral home and then to the church. And we arranged the order of service and got everything in line and who'd speak and if they could speak and all these things and just sort of took care of that. And in all that... Honestly, it was almost like I was dealing with strangers, like not, not in a bad way, but just it, just, it, didn't, it didn't, I wasn't broken about it like you'd think you would be because it's family. But here's the reason why. I was too busy organizing it, and I was too busy praying about what I was going to preach, and I was too busy trying to be a comfort to my family. And then in the foyer, the vestibule of the church where the funeral was, when I walked in there by myself and went up to that open casket and saw their bodies both times laying in there, I'll tell you what happened to me. I broke then. I made it through the preliminaries of it because I was busy with it. But then when it kind of came time and it was settled, it was done, and there's this time to think and really consider it, it got to me. The same thing's true on a little lesser note. Whenever I got hurt a couple, three years ago when we played that basketball game, when I, when I tore my Achilles tendon, just, it, it didn't really hurt me at the time. In fact, I thought somebody threw a basketball and hit me in the back of the leg and I fell down. That's what it felt like. And then kind of hobbled over to the side and Brother Chad checked me out and I said, I think it's torn. And it didn't really hurt me then, physically or mentally or anything. But then when I got back to our house that evening and I was alone and just sitting there, it began to throb. Because the adrenaline wore off and the crowd was gone. There wasn't anybody there to worry about the appearance of the thing. And the pain set in. 
Then I got that fixed, and honestly, it was all right. But then when you're laying on the couch and you're just, just trying to build a Sunday school class and things were still going, and, man, I couldn't go sewing or anything, then it really began to get yeah, to me. I mean, yeah. honestly, I'm used to being busy and going 100 miles an hour and used to preaching and things, and I was laid up. And uh, I'll be honest with you, the in all that, when it first happened, didn't really bother me a lot, honestly. But the after that, there were times where it honestly was depressing. I mean, it was yeah. discouraging to be laid up. The Bible's vital to the Christian. There's an old song we used to sing it growing up. I'm using my Bible for a road map. And what that song is portraying to us is this. Every step you and I take in this world ought to be guided by the Word of God. There might be some things you can afford to live without, but you can't afford to live without your Bible. Paul wrote to Timothy and told him to study. Now that charge was not just for Timothy as a preacher. That was for Timothy as a Christian. In Psalm 1, it tells us the only way you and I can be blessed is to delight in the law of the Lord. And to meditate in it when you wake up, meditate in it throughout the day, and to meditate in it through the night. If you don't have a relationship with your Bible, then you're going to have a very weak relationship with your God. Now, you study the Bible, and the Bible tells us it's food, and it's water, and it's a balm. It can cut, and it can comfort, it can correct. It directs our steps through life. Other books can give you information, but the Bible can absolutely transform everything about you. Job himself testified about the Bible in chapter 23 and said, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And it's amazing today to me that God would condescend. He would come down from eternity, become an author, and leave his word for you and I. We can hold it in our hand. We can hide it in our heart, and it will direct our steps. I say this. This is just introduction. I say this on the radio often, and I say it because I, I believe it. When I talk to the people that listen to KNVBC, I tell them, whatever your question is for the day, the Bible has the answer. Whatever your situation is for the day, the Bible has the explanation. And I don't know if this is true for you. I know it's true for me, so probably it's true for the general public here today. I tend to turn to passages in my Bible or read parts of my Bible that deal with whatever I'm going through at that moment in my life. Depending upon what I'm facing or what I'm feeling, I gravitate to parts of the Bible that seem to touch on that particular need. For example, if I need wisdom, where do I run? I run to the book of Proverbs. If I'm in an attitude of worship, where do I go? I go to the book of Psalms. If I feel like I'm a little apathetic and need fired up about doing a work for God, I tell you where I run. I run to the book of Acts and I study the book of Acts. If I want to deepen my personal walk with God, I read through the epistles of Paul or the general epistles. Maybe I watch the news, which I wouldn't recommend you do that, but maybe I watch the news and get a little depressed that we're on the losing end. Well, then I go reread the book of Revelation, and I remind myself that we're on the winning side, and one day Jesus will be crowned Lord of all. At Christmas, isn't it true that we often study Luke chapter 2 because it's Christmas? At Easter, we read John 20 because it's Easter. And on the same note, the book of Job is sort of the go-to text whenever we're worried or weary or our life is at wreck or you're asking questions and saying, God, why is this going on in my life? If the book of Psalms is the book for worship and the book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom and the book of Acts is a book for service, then the book of Job is God's authoritative text on suffering and how to go through it. Peter warned us that fiery trials are just a part of the Christian life. And all of the book of Job is penned from the furnace of trial. The book of Job is a very deep book. It's a very contemplative book. And it's about a, about a time of dark and searching trial in the life of a man named Job. If you take time to read through the entirety of the book, you hear the heart of Job speaking and watch as Job's soul is poured out upon the pages of Scripture. 
Now, we know this morning Jesus is our primary example of, in suffering. But I would say outside of Christ, no man endured suffering quite like this man by the name of Job. Now, it might not be for you today, but it'll be for you someday that you'll find yourself in a proverbial land of us, if you will, in a place just like Job found himself. And it'll be good to run to Job as your case study how to handle that circumstance or season in your life. It might be a family tragedy. I hope not, but it might. It might be a financial problem. It might be a physical need. It could be discord in your home or some kind of an accusation against your character. But there'll be a time where you and I find ourselves in all this just like Job found himself in all that. Now, as you open up the book of Job and begin to look at chapter 1, the Bible testifies of Job's reputation. And let me say, I'm glad Job's character matched his reputation. Some folks have a great reputation and no character. But I'm glad Job had character to go with it. In verse number 1 of chapter 1, see what it says about Job. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was, look what it says, perfect and upright. One that feared God and eschewed evil. That initial statement speaks of Job's testimony. If I was going to describe Job, I'd say, here he is. He's a man of spiritual integrity. In his day, he is the pace setter, spiritually speaking. He loves the Lord. He shows his love for the Lord by being faithful. He's spiritual. He tries to live a life free from sin. He tries to be holy and lead his family to be holy as well. In verse 2 and 3, the Bible tells us about his riches. Job's a very blessed man. In fact, it tells us at the end of verse 3 that he's the greatest of all the men in the east. So think about this man with me. He's a man that was holy. He's a man that was spiritual. And he's a man that had the blessings of God poured out upon his life. He had more money. He had more assets. He had a blessed family. This man was capital B, blessed beyond measure. Then we find a testimony of Job's religion in verse 4 and 5. We won't read it, but you can look at it there. Job would rise up as the sun came up on the horizon, and he got up to worship God. He went to an altar and offered sacrifices for his sons and daughters. He wasn't just a lip service high priest of his household. He was a serving active high priest in his household. He led his family in the worship of God. What a man he was. This isn't some slacker. This isn't some bench warmer for God. This isn't some hit and miss Christian. This is a faithful man that loved the Lord and worshiped him regularly in his life. Now, when you get to verse six, his story takes a turn. The rest of the book of Job is no longer about his testimony, but now it centers upon his trial. The blessed life that we read about in the first five verses is swallowed up in unexpected suffering. Now, when I say the name Job, you probably don't think about his livestock. And when I say Job, you probably don't think about his bank account. And when I say Job, you probably don't think about his family. But when I mention the name Job, probably you think about the trial and the suffering that he endured. In verse number six, the Bible tells us of chapter one, the devil comes and stands before the Lord. The Bible said the devil had been running to and fro throughout the earth. Let me say he's still doing the same thing today. He was up to no good in that day, and he's up to no good in this day. As the conversation unravels between the Lord and Satan, Job's name comes up. 
And the Lord says, have you considered this man, Job? There's nobody like him. He never misses Sunday school. He always pays his tithe. He's there at soul winning. He has the right standards and devotion. His family's an example of a Christian home. There's nobody like Job. And the devil is given permission by God to begin to try the character of Job. Now, beginning in verse 13, the furnace is lit in his life. And the fire begins to burn. Trial comes to Job's life unlike any trial a man has ever endured outside of Christ upon Calvary. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the record unravels for us as Satan begins to land blow after blow upon the life of this spiritual man. You study it out and you find that Job endures his suffering, but it progresses as it goes on. First, he's afflicted in his fields. Then he's afflicted in his finances. And then in chapter one, he's afflicted in his family. We don't have time to read through it all today, and you already know the story. But you read through chapter one, verse 13 through the end, and you find that these men come and they steal away Job's livestock and murder his servants. On another account, fire falls from heaven, lightning probably, and, and kills his sheep. They steal away his camels and his oxen. Job is hearing this one after the other. It comes to him, Job, you'll never believe it. Your bank account's depleted. You didn't plan it, but now all your assets are gone. Job, you didn't wake up thinking this would happen, but your fields are now empty. And then another servant comes and says, Job, you know your children, your seven sons and three daughters, those babies that you love, they're all together in a house fellowshipping. And a strong wind began to blow from the wilderness. And that tornado as it came hit the corners of that house in Job. That house rocked on its foundation. And the roof gave way. And the house caved in. And all of your children have been killed. Can you imagine Job? He woke up that day worshiping God. Having the world by the tail. And now the devil has him by the throat. He's lost his money. He's lost his life and now he'll have to bury his children. Imagine the heartache. Imagine the shock. Imagine the pain. Imagine the brokenness of this man. No longer will those servants fill his home. No longer will those livestock fill his fields. No longer will those children fill his table. Can you imagine how hot the furnace must have felt? Trouble rolled in his life like unending waves of the sea crashing down upon him. Think about it with me. Job is hurting. Job is humbled. Job is heartbroken. But the Bible said he handles it all by saying God was in control. God is in control and God will be in control. God gave it to me. God took it away. I'm going to go back to where I met with him before and he fell down in the ashes, lifted up his hands to heaven and began to sing praises to God. He said, naked came I into this world. He said, I'll go out the same way. He said, I'm just going to bless God anyhow. And the testimony is this. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He was hurting, but he still trusted God. He was humbled, but still loyal to God. He was brokenhearted, but still leaning upon the Lord. Have you ever heard the statement, when it rains, it pours? That's where we're at in the life of Job. You'd think that'd been enough right there. But Job maintained his integrity. And now the devil turns his attention from Job's fields and Job's family to Job's flesh. The Bible tells us in chapter 2, as you roll into that chapter, again the devil comes to Job's life. He begins to afflict his body. His body is covered in burning, oozing sores from the top of his head to the soles of his 
his feet. So much so is the agony that Job goes and gets a broken shard of pottery and begins to scrape the pus and scabs off of his body. He can find no relief. There is no cure for this. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he's covered in these boils, not just his flocks and not just his finances and not just his field, but now he's being afflicted in his flesh. Then off in the background, are you still alive, Job? Haven't you killed yourself yet? I wish you were dead, Job. That voice that said, I do at an altar now saying, I wish you didn't live. I wish you were dead. I wish you'd kill yourself. I wish you'd curse God and die. That's dark right there. And then come these men that are supposed to be his friends. And they look at Job and their estimation is he did wrong. That's why he's being judged. They begin to falsely accuse him slander him and scorn him. And for seven days they sit there and don't say one thing to Job. And then after they do open their mouth and say something to Job, all they say is, Job, you deserve this. You brought this on yourself. But it's interesting what the Bible said in chapter number two and verse 10. In all this did not Job sin. What do you mean? I'm talking about in dead children. He didn't sin. I'm talking about in depleted assets. He did not sin. I'm talking about in the heat of a marital problem. He did not sin. I'm talking about in the accusations of his friends. He did not sin. After those silent days, seven days of sitting in the furnace of suffering, he still did not sin. He maintained his integrity. He's gone from the mountain to the lowest part of the valley, the most blessed man in the world to a broken man. He was a spectacle. Yet throughout the worst trial ever recorded in the life of a man, Job waded the deep waters and he never sinned against his God. In the last of chapter 2. It said his grief was very great but in all this isn't it amazing? I mean he's not observing it from a distance. He's not an armchair quarterback. He is in the eye of that storm. He's in the midst of that fire. He's in the uh, heat of that affliction and yet in all that, in all that he trusted God and he worked for God and he worshipped God and he maintained his integrity. But chapter 3 is probably the darkest chapter in the Bible. Chapter 3 is literally a suicide note or suicide wish from Job to God. You study chapter number 3, he curses his creator. He curses his creation. He curses his conception. All throughout this book, there's re- or chapter, there's references after reference to darkness, blackness, night, and shadow. This is Job's prayer request that he'd never been born. This is a man wishing that he would die on the spot. These are the words of somebody who's in such pain they'd rather be dead than to live another day. Now you see in chapter 1, he went through it, and as he was in it, he did not sin. And then chapter 2, while he was in it, he maintained his integrity. But the very first phrase of chapter 3 is this, after, talking about after the storm, after the funeral, after the loss, after the heartache, after the tragedy, after it all kind of calmed down, after Job had seven days to think and to wonder and doubt and question from his heart. It comes out after this. Job opened his mouth and he cursed his day. All the testimony, all the integrity, all of the worship that he maintained in the thing, he lost it after it was over. One week after he'd worshiped, one week after he prayed, one week after he trusted the Lord, now he curses God. 
I'd have understood Job doing that right after he heard your servants were killed. I could understand Job doing that right after he found out you've got zero dollars now to your name. I can understand Job doing that as he buried not one baby, but ten of his children. But he did fine in all that. He could have responded to his boils and said, God, I wish I was dead, but he didn't. He could have responded to his wife and said, let me tell you where to get off. Why don't you take care of yourself? I'm going to worship. But he didn't do that. But now after seven days of thinking and seven days of quiet and seven days of sinking in and seven days of nothing happening and seven days of being idle and seven days of battling the hurt on the inside, his faith is shaken and his mouth opens and he curses God. He dives into a dark place in all of his trial. He worshiped, but now he's angry. Now he's bitter. Now he's on the attack. He's cursing God. He wishes he was dead. He wants to kill himself and reveals the weakness of his flesh. And you read the chapter when you go home. The whole chapter is a dark chapter from a spiritual man. Now let me apply this. There's a term we use a lot for soldiers who've been in combat and have come home. And I'm not a psychiatrist and don't know a lot about it, but it's also connected with anybody who's gone through a traumatic experience or witnessed something horrible. And that term is PTSD. Right? You've heard it before. Post-traumatic stress syndrome. Here's what it means. It's a debilitating or life-altering trouble that comes to someone not in whatever it was, but after whatever it was. We have earthquakes around here. You know the term aftershock. You know what an aftershock is? A sudden release of stress from a different place that wasn't there before. You know what the danger of an aftershock is? It slows down the rescue process. It can make things fall apart that were almost ready to fall apart. It doesn't happen in the initial blow. I was looking at statistics, and I'm not getting into this, so don't get nervous about it, but 70%, it says 70% of people that live uh, will have at least one traumatic event happen in their life. And because of that, 20% of them will get that post-traumatic stress syndrome. Usually when I think about that, I think about soldiers who come home from war. I had friends that I went to college with, and some of them battled with this. And here's the, here's the issue. They were fine in the battle. They were fine when bullets were blazing past their body. They were fine living in the, uh, in the trenches. They were fine in the foreign field. They were fine whenever the enemy was bearing down on them. They were comfortable in the heat of combat because they were busy, because they had a job to do. They were occupied and had a task to fulfill. They were consumed with whatever the objective was. There was no time for any traumatic stress because they were fighting for their life. But here's what happened. After the battle was over, after the deployment ended, when they weren't in the trenches, when the guns were now silent, when that soldier was sitting alone in an empty house and there's nothing new coming into his life and all he has is time to look back and think back and question back, that's when that comes in. And they live with nervousness and scared and detached and apathetic and a a lot of them end up taking all their, not taking their life. They did fine in it, but they were destroyed after it. I have a man, and I won't name his name because people from where I'm from back home will watch this when they get out of church to see where I'm at and what I'm doing, so I don't want to name his name. I learned how to play guitar when I was in high school. And the man who taught me how to play guitar did not teach me how to play guitar. He'd let me sit there and watch him play guitar and just said, learn it. And we learned how to play by ear. Nobody reads music where I'm from. They just learn how to play by ear. And so we were sitting in there, and he was an old man, always wore his Vietnam veteran's hat. And would always tell me about the war, Vietnam War veteran, and I'm proud of his service and things, and he was a blessing. I always, always smoked a pipe, and th I remember the smell in there. And I'd go there after high school and sit, and he'd show me how to play guitar, and he'd tell me war stories and things like that. We went home for Christmas two years ago, 
And my dad told me, he said, did you hear what happened? I said, what happened? He named the man's name. He said, he shot himself, killed himself, committed suicide. He said, the war in the jungle didn't kill him. But the war in his head did. I'm not trying to be dark and tonight I've got a rejoicing kind of a message. But I want to admonish our church family today. You better be careful with your after this. In fact, I think you'll find your after this might be harder than your in all this. You know why? Because all you have after this is time. And you know what erodes the mountain away? It is time. You know what will erode your faith away? Time. And what erodes your dependence away? It is time. Time has a way of wearing us down and tiring us out and leading us down paths we never thought we would go. That aftershock is that sudden release of stress. Brother Strofe gave me a book on leadership. I've been reading it. It's been a blessing. But it, there's an illustration about these tectonic plates under the ground that cause an earthquake. And an earthquake happens. And we think, well, that just happened all of a sudden. It just erupted all of a sudden. But then the, the, the men who study that say, no, it didn't happen all of a sudden. Those plates have been busted into each other for who knows how long under the surface and you just could not see it. And here's what happens a lot of time in your trial. Those plates are busting against each other. You've got different emotions warring against each other. You're getting in weird places in your life, but you're so busy. There's no time really to act upon it. But then you settle down. The funeral's over. The comforter's gone. The phone calls quit. The diagnosis is in. All hope is now gone. The situation has been settled. And then when that takes place, you're not careful. Those things ram together and it causes something to come forth in your life that never would have. There might be faith in it and optimism in it and even victory in it and a good testimony in it but when things settle down it all blows apart you got to be careful with the after all of this you say what do you mean I mean Moses had that happen in his life David had that happen in his life Elijah crawled up under a tree and said I wish I could die in his life why it was not the in it that got him it was the after it that got him because in it there's still hope for something positive because in it there's still hope and reason to pray. Because in it, maybe it'll still work out. Because in it, maybe we can keep this thing together. But after it, it's settled. Let me give you three things to consider. How did Job sin? Number one, he sinned with his mind. Those seven silent days were not silent within Job. They might have been silent around him, but they weren't silent within him. Job cursed God, I think, in his heart before he ever cursed God with his lips. There's some of you here today been singing these songs and rejoicing with us and smiling on the outside and yet on the inside, your mind is the battlefield. That's why Peter wrote and said, gird up the loins of your mind. He said, like a soldier would arm himself. That's why Paul told us, take that helmet of salvation. You've got to have something to guard your mind. You've got to watch what you think. You'll get yourself all mixed up in your head. You'll get in these dark places and be your own counselor, which is the worst counsel ever to take is your own counsel. And you'll convince yourself in your mind that things aren't right or things weren't fair or things didn't go the way they ought to be. You need to watch sinning with your mind. Number two, sinning with your mind leads to number two, sinning with your mouth. Job cursed God because of what he thought about God. You'd be wise not to say anything in the heat of a battle. And then you'd be wise not to make any kind of definitive statement right after it's settled. You watch those that are closest to you because you'll hurt them the most. Watch your mouth when you've been through a mess and don't charge God foolishly. Number three, look what Job did. He sinned with his, not just his mind and his mouth, but he sinned with his mania. You know what that word means? His obsession. You know what he was obsessed with in chapter one and two? Worshiping the Lord. In spite of his pain and his problem, he was still focused on God. You know what he's overly obsessed with in chapter 3? Himself. 
You know those people, all they talk about is that one thing that happened to them. You can't have a conversation with them because it always comes back to that thing that happened to them. That one thing that they think is not right or not fair, they got hurt, or their child died in trouble, and all that, I understand that. But their life is now defined not by who they are, but by what they went through. They're eaten up with it day and night. Here's what Job did. He made his tragedy his idol and wanted to die because of it. Joseph is how you handle it. I'm glad Joseph maintained his testimony through a pit and Potiphar's house and a prison palace. And he said, God meant it for good. I want to read you something real quick and I'll close. And I don't normally do this, you know that, but this just spoke to my heart and it'll illustrate. Would you just listen real close on purpose? Listen. That's what it says. It was Autumn and this woman, uh, I won't say their last name, Patricia and her husband Trevor were hiking in uh, a national park in Canada. As they passed into a dense pine forest, Patricia had a sense of foreboding. Something wasn't right. Trevor called her paranoid and they resumed their climb. It was a popular trail. There seemed no reason for concern, yet as they came into view of a waterfall, Patricia stopped again. An awful smell hit her, but Trevor dismissed it. A bighorn sheep had died just off the trail, and though she didn't know it, she could smell it decomposing, its decomposing body. Patricia worried aloud about bears, but Trevor's enthusiasm won out, and they pressed up on the trail. Trevor rushed ahead, eager as always to plunge onward. He disappeared around a bend, and Patricia hurried to follow. But as she came within sight of him, something was out of place. It took a moment before she comprehended what she saw. Trevor was down, and a bear's jaws were around his leg. The bear charged Patricia so fast that she could scarcely take it in. Their eyes met for a moment. Then the bear took her head in its mouth and began chewing. She could feel its teeth scraping across her skull, ripping away her eye and half of her face. Patricia thought of her mother and all the people who would be destroyed by her death. She reached up and twisted the huge black nose of the bear. The bear barked and stood aside and began to pace in front of her, and Patricia played dead. Silence fell at last, and she began to stand and felt that something was wrong with her head. She was in the snow and hypothermic and near death when hikers came to her aid. Somehow they managed to get her down the trail and to find a search and rescue team. Not until she reached the hospital did she learn that Trevor was expected to live. Her stay in the hospital was a, now listen, her stay in the hospital was a torture of surgical procedures interrupted by hallucinations, flashbacks, and nightmares. The bear was in the hall, stalking Patricia in her dreams. For weeks of that autumn in 1983, she was completely blind, adding to her disorientation. The bear took not only her skin and scalp, but the muscles of the neck that held up her head. The surgeons took part of her back muscles and grafted it in place as a substitute. That procedure alone took 12 hours. She was informed that her left eye, where the bear had eaten away the cheekbone, would never see or move again. She was 24 years old. She'd been working as a hospital nurse, and her, uh, Trevor was a third-year medical student. A month after the attack, they were able to leave the hospital to visit her parents. On that outing, it first became clear that Patricia and Trevor were about to take radically divergent courses. Patricia's response was terror and shame at her disfigurement. She felt weak and vulnerable, apprehensive that the car would crash on the way home. She now experienced the world around her as an intensely hazardous place. Arriving at the home where she had grown up, she felt overwhelmed. I'm a stranger in some way, she said, echoing many who survived trauma. Trevor, different. Trevor was disfigured. His head and face crisscrossed with stitches and his jawbone broken. His leg ripped open and sewn back together. And yet, as they left the hospital that day, he was singing. Even though his jaw was wired shut, he was singing. Again and again, he said he felt lucky and just grateful to be alive. 
One evening, he smuggled a wheelchair to Patricia's room and sneaked her out to see the view. That night, he said he wanted to get out of the hospital and go rock climbing. In his mind, he was moving on from the experience. Although they had survived the same experience, the differences in the responses grew greater over time. You read on, it says, Patricia nor Trevor could eat solid food. She grew thinner, but he took a blender to the hospital, put ice cream and lasagna and other things in the blender so he could get enough calories to gain weight. By the time they were able to leave the hospital, Trevor was losing patience with Patricia for reliving the incident. It goes on to talk about the story. She would look out and see that grizzly bear roaming the halls of her house. She wouldn't go outside and look out through the window saying, there's a bear out there. I'm not going outside. And she held herself in her room. They had children together. It said 15 years passed after the attack, yet still Patricia read obsessively about bears and people being attacked by bears and wrote compulsively about her experience. She had a big family and a good social support from her siblings and friends, but their well-meaning attempts to help her merely sent her into a rage. And this is what spoke to my heart. On December 14, 2005, Patricia checked into a hotel in British Columbia, and she took her own life, leaving behind Trevor and her four children. But listen to this. She lost the fight that she had started with the bear 22 years ago. She fought that invisible bear for 22 years. The after this is what got her. She survived the attack, but she couldn't win the war in her mind. You're here today and you say, well, I've fallen into sin. Well, that's over with. You can't fix that. But you better watch what you do with the after it. You say, well, I've got cancer. Well, you can't change that. That's done. But you better guard yourself in the after that. Well, I've buried my loved one. You can't bring them back. You better be careful with what you do now in the after all this. I'm going to pray. It's one of those messages where I feel like the invitation is specific. Amen. But I don't know what's going on in your heart. There's so many people, we saw that video about depression and things. What is that? It's the failure for us to filter things through that filter. Think on these things. Think on these things, godly things, holy things, righteous. And we let these deep, dark thoughts invade our life. And that after this will kill you. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.